and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, Frida Odesson, VP of US Sales at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed, and we'll be unpacking why these trends are important for Outbound. I hope you enjoy the episode. Chris, it's great to meet you. Welcome to today's episode of Redefining Outbound. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So I was thinking just to kick things off, like, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. So my name is Chris Orlob. I am currently co-founder and CEO of a business called pclub.io, which is short for President's Club, in case there's anybody outside of the sales world uh, listening. And what we do at pclub is we work with the top 1% of sales practitioners and sales leaders to create online courses to help tech salespeople sell better. So we've got a number you know, of courses with some of the, the bigger names in tech sales, and they address each skill that you would need to grow your attainment, grow your revenue, et cetera. And we are having an absolute blast building that business. Um, probably the thing I'm best known for is playing a few different roles in helping grow a company called Gong from a little under $200,000 in annual revenue uh, to a little over $200 million by the time I left in about a five-year span. All right. Very impressive. I'm excited to dig in and learn more about that. Um, one thing we do before we sort of get started is to ask every guest, what does redefining outbound mean to you? I think, I don't know if it's redefining it, but it's more like uh, a call to action for sellers to go deeper on buyer orientation with their outbound messages. And I know that sounds really generic, so I can get a little bit more specific here. The best outbound messages, the best outbound prospectors and sellers, when they're crafting their message, one of the things I've noticed is they don't talk about their product at all. In, in, in a way that's like almost concerning for like the average salesperson, they're like, how do they even know what you do? You didn't say anything about the product. And that's actually kind of the point when the best outbound messages and, and outbound sequences and what have you uh, typically have one thing in common, and it is they can articulate the pain that your buyer is experiencing as well or better than they can themselves. Right. So like, again, if we're using email as an example and the buyer is reading a great cold email, it should almost feel like an entry from like their journal or their diary or something like that. Um, I used to have a mentor say uh, the key to sales and marketing success is if you can peer into your buyer's soul, if you can get yourself to that point and that level of understanding of who you're serving, uh, then things go really well. So I think, you know, that that's my answer to that. A lot of sellers still think, you know, pitching their product and the benefits and what they do is the key to outbound, or they just can't help but keep it in. And most of the best outbound messages, it's just a an amazingly accurate articulation of your buyer's pain, followed by a call to action that says something like, curious if you're open to a chat about solving this. Yeah, so it's like almost like, I understand your problem better than do you do, so I can help you better. The same mentor uh, told me, again, a long time ago, if you can articulate your buyer's pain as well or better than they can, then they'll automatically think you have the best solution. It's the ultimate trust building and credibility building mechanism. Yeah. And yet I feel like very few salespeople do this today. 
yeah, they're, I mean, they're very oriented, you know, on not just the product, right? Like, I get, I think everybody on this or listening to this podcast probably inherently understands we shouldn't be feature dumping, but mm-hmm. we're still so like benefit oriented. And there's a time and place for benefits, but typically a cold message isn't one of them or an outbound message isn't one of them, right? For somebody to actually act on something and for you to break through the noise, you first have to agitate the pain a little bit, the pain that you can solve and bring them out of. And now when you're you know, running a sales cycle with them and you're having more serious conversations, now you can flip over to the other side of that coin and talk benefits a little bit more. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. We can talk about that all day. Uh, for today's episode, I sort of have three main topics uh, in mind that I love to, to dive into with you. Um, go-to-market lessons, uh, demos. I know you talk a lot about um, how to make the best demos um, and then navigating the buyer's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, yeah, let's start with the go-to-market. Um, I'm curious to hear like um, from being part of Growing Gong and, and the success that Gong was, like what are your top three uh, go-to-market lessons uh, that you learned growing Gong? I'll start with one that our CEO uh, taught me and taught everybody at Gong as we were growing. He said, the key to building a unicorn company is you build a product so good that a weak go-to-market team could sell it. And then you build a go-to-market team so good that they could sell a weak product, right? Like most companies that are kind of like in the, in the struggling mid-market, they only do one of those or like one of those is lacking a little bit. But when you do both really well, um, now, now you have unicorn companies. And I get talking about unicorns is a little bit like, <laughs> I don't want to say outdated, but it's not something we're really talking about right now in this you know, in this economic downturn. But if you can figure out how to do both of those things, then things can go really, really well. And an example of how we executed that at Gong is I was the second marketing hire right after our VP of marketing before we were even doing $200,000 in revenue, right? Like most tech companies wait until like a few seven figures worth of run rate to, to hire their first marketer, let alone like, a marketing VP followed by a senior director of product marketing, which is the first job that I did for a couple of years. And the point is like our CEO was investing in marketing from the very early days because he knew he had a good product, right? He, he, we were working on checking that box. Not that that's a box to check. Um, he knew he was going to build a good sales motion, but when you can put all of these, you know, three things together, great product, great sales, great marketing, which, Again, most companies are lacking at least one of those, especially startups. Uh, things can go a lot better for you. So I think that's probably you know the big the big one is um, I think about the time he told me that a lot. Right, build a product so good that a weak go to market team could sell it. Uh, build a go to market team so good that they could sell a weak product. You do both, and magic can happen. So I think that's the first one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You have a second and third on mine. Definitely. Um, I think the second one is the best sales teams have a certain relentlessness to them. And that word can have some negative connotations sometimes. So I just like want to expand on what I mean. What I'm not talking about is like pressuring or bulldozing your buyers or anything like that. Uh, But pretty early, I think it was at right, like $500,000 in ARR or something like this. We hired a guy named Jameson Young as the VP of sales, 
who at the time of this recording is still the SVP of sales of one of the businesses at Gong. And he built an absolutely relentless uh, sales organization very fast in the sense that like, if there was blood in the water, so to speak, meaning like we could sense there was a propensity to buy, we were following up with that buyer um, relentlessly. We would get our executives and Jameson would reach out and I would reach out and we would get our investors to reach out to them. We were playing every angle we possibly could. And I think a lot of, especially in the startup world, sales organizations don't really understand what it takes to like build a startup from thin air. It's not just like your typical sales motion. It's not like, oh, cool, we got a lead. Let's do a discovery call. Let's do a demo. Let's see if we're interested. Like building a startup is hard. And I get there's people listening who are not just talking about startups, but you also asked about some of my go-to-market lessons. So that's where my head's going. And so I think um, without being pushy and without creating a negative buying experience, I think most sales organizations need to rethink a little bit about how pleasantly persistent they are with the deals that are qualified in their pipeline and how many angles they're playing to get those deals closed. So I think that's the second one. I know you're going to ask me th- for a third one. So I'm yes, just going <laughs> to try to beat you to the punch. Um, I think there's probably a bunch, but I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, this is almost counter to like the topic of the podcast when it comes to outbound. And this is not negating outbound because we had a very solid uh, outbound motion at Gong. But I think a lot of businesses uh, get content marketing wrong. Right. Like everybody uh, talks about content marketing and they do it, but there's so much content marketing going on that like the majority of it, just like it doesn't cut through the noise because everybody's writing their SEO blogs and, and trying to be like a thought leader or something like that on LinkedIn. And one of the things I've learned is two things, but both of them have to be true. One, you should do content marketing, but two, you should only do it if you are convinced that it is like insanely great content, if you can't get to that bar, you may as well just not do it because you're going to be spending time, resources, human capital on a bunch of mediocre things that are not going to cut through the clutter. And so I think that's one of the things that really helped us. We had this, you know, marketing program called Gong Labs, uh, which was kind of unfair uh, in terms of the advantage we had. Uh, because we had all this data, right, in Gong of like salespeople having conversations. And so we would anonymize that, we would analyze it, and we would write publications saying, here's exactly what separates the best salespeople according to data, right? We analyzed a few million uh, sales conversations, and here's what we found. And we did that a lot. And it just, you know, it was, again, back to the standard, it was insanely great. And people really gravitated around it. And it gave us that initial velocity at Gong, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure Gong still does it, right? They're well into the multi nine figures run rate and they still have this marketing program going. Um, but it helped us get from, you know, almost $0 to, to multiple eight figures and run rate really fast. Yeah. And that was sort of new at the time. Like no one had ever done that, like backed up sales, sort of like sales plays with data. Yeah, everybody tries to do it. Um, but the point is, like most businesses, if you just discipline yourself to think through what your version of that could be, it doesn't even have to be data. Um, 
but what could an insanely great content program look like for your business? And can you hold your bar to insanely great? Because you have to do it if you're even an order of magnitude, just one order of magnitude lower than that, then it's not even worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, there's also actually, I think, like a 2018 article on in how insanely short sales cycles that I'm still sending to my team. I sent it to them like three weeks ago. Uh, I was like, everyone should read this. Um, so a lot of great content uh, in there. Nice. Uh, awesome. So I'm curious, like if, if let's say you join Gong today and Gong was at 200K in, in revenue, uh, what would you do differently? Also like taking into effect today's like landscape and ec economic climate. I think the biggest thing is I would try to figure out what our positioning is going to be when it comes to selling in this climate, right? Because what worked for us in 2021, which were the go-go days of tech, wouldn't work for us today if I was still at Gong and wouldn't have worked for us in 2016. And so one of the things that's worth keeping in mind is a couple of things. Number one, money follows pain, right? Like people buy things for a lot of different reasons um, to relieve pain, to attain benefits, sometimes for political reasons. Um, but more than any other reason, money uh, follows pain. Okay, so like that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is this economic environment creates a lot of what? Pain. <laughs> so, so in some senses, like not every business is going to lend itself to this, but in some senses, uh, this is an opportunity, right? A segment of your market might have heightened pain. And if you can position your organization or your product or your value pro proposition to address that um, newly created pain as a result of this you know, economic reality, then you might actually do pretty well, maybe not better than you did in like a, a growth period, but that's actually what we do with P Club, right? So P Club has like a business to consumer offering with all of our courses, but we also have a business to business offering <clears throat> where we create like customized skill paths and learning paths for sales organizations to up level uh, their orgs, right? It's not unlike the value proposition of sales training. And that is our positioning, right? Like much of our content lends itself to here's how to sell through an economic downturn. We have courses on selling to CFOs, building champions, building business cases, and doing discovery in a way that creates urgency. And that's been a boon for our business, right? Like where P Club is doing really well right now. And the best part is it's in the service of other people, right? Because like what you don't want to do is take advantage of things, right? Like there's pain in the market. Let's go get it. We can get a bunch of money out of this. What you do want to do is say there's pain in the market. Um, we should go relieve that. We should be a service to other people and to relieve their pain. And by the way, if we do a really good job of that, then we will be financially rewarded. But the first focus has to be on creating value for other people. So that was a big tangent, right? Like I answered a bunch of questions you didn't even ask me. <laughs> uh, hopefully that answers the original question. I don't even remember if I remember the yes. original question. No, it absolutely does. Like pain is not constant. It can change if like mm -hmm. your situation changes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. And that actually brings me to my next question. Speaking of P Club and, and your company, um, so I know one thing that you talked a lot about is uh, demos and, and what makes a demo great. So in your opinion, like what's the difference between a good demo and an excellent demo? 
if I could distill it to, to one thing, it's the same thing I told you about like outbound messages. It is so customer and buyer centric that like, it's almost not a demo, right? Like when I see, when we train sales organizations that are struggling with demos and we get to know like how they're doing a demo, it's very product oriented, right? Like they're trying to, they think they're being customer oriented, but it's like, oh, you can click around and do this. You can click around and do that. Instead of saying, one of the challenges you shared with me is XYZ pain point, right? Did I hear that right? And they say, yes. And you say, great, let me show you exactly how we alleviate that. And you bring them through a specific flow. And then you ask, to what extent do you think that compares to how you're tackling this challenge today, right? Like, so the demo, true to a few things we've already talked about is very much around positioning for the customer, right? They're the hero of the story. This is nothing new. Like people talk about this all the time. We just struggle to implement it. The customer's the story of the demo. The product is not. And the focus should be on alleviating pain, right? You told me X or many of our customers are experiencing Y or here's what we're seeing a lot of people struggle with. Talk to me about how that's showing up in your world. Let them talk for a little bit. Now position the demo as a tool that enables the hero, which is your customer, to go alleviate a pain point or make good on some sort of opportunity they can't currently make good on. Yeah, that's an interesting um, point of view that I think most salespeople probably don't have. Mm-hmm. Right, so a big shift in mindset. Um, yeah, I know you also have a an acronym called Favorite. Mm-hmm. Can you break that down for me? Yeah. So when I think of structured, highly effective demos, uh, there's two different structures people need to get right. One is like the macro structure of a demo. Okay. You've got a 45 minute demo call. What's the agenda of that, right? Like, are you going to start with a, what we heard slide? How are you going to demo, et cetera? Um, that's not what favorite is favorite. By the way, that one's important too. We just have a different framework for it. Favorite is an eight letter acronym for how you successfully demo each feature within your demo. Okay, so we call it the micro framework. The macro one addresses, here's how you're gonna structure your 45 minute call. The micro framework that is favorite is how do you structure presenting one feature at high impact? And so you'll repeat the favorite structure three, four, maybe five times throughout an entire demo call. So let me just break it down. Um, favorite F stands for frame the pain, right? That's the first thing you do. You spend 10 seconds saying one of the things you shared with me is X, Y, Z pain point, pain point. So that's F a is ask a question to get them to expand on the pain, right? So maybe you say like, you said you were struggling with X, tell me a little bit more about it. You just want them to get, you know, kind of expand on it. V is visualize the outcome, right? Get them to start thinking about the positive benefits you're about to show them. So it's, you would say something like, what I'm about to show you is going to help you achieve X positive outcome. So you've already gone through this, you know, first three flows, you've framed the pain, you've asked them a question and you've done a very short value statement to help them visualize the outcome. Next, O is orient them to the screen. This is a very tactical thing that most sellers don't get. They start clicking around in their demo. Can I swear on this podcast or should I leave this off? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll it off, but I think like, you can and we'll beep it. <laughs> most buyers, when uh, you're showing them the first few things, they're like, what the hell am I looking at here? Right. And the seller's already like way off to the races. 
And so the best demos before you like really start walking through the workflow, you spend 10 seconds orienting them to the screen, right? You say over here, you're looking at X, Y, Z. Over here, you're looking at ABC. You with me so far? I'm about to show you how all this works. And the buyer says yes, and now they understand what you're about to show them, right? The confused mind says no. This is how you eliminate the confused mind. Um, R in the favorite framework is reveal the workflow, right? After you've oriented them to the screen, you just reveal what you were about to show them. There's not much to say about that, but this is like, this is the, the meat of your demo. I don't have to teach salespeople how to do that. They know how to do that plenty well. Oh yeah. <laughs> After you've done that, I, in the favorite framework is implant the value, which is again, where you're just saying another value statement, just like you did a few minutes before, where it's like, as a result of what I just showed you, you will be able to achieve X, Y, Z. One of the things I'll say about that before I keep going on, by the way, is you'll notice that the demo part, the part where you're clicking around is wrapped in value, right? So we had the visualize the outcome thing that happened right before the demo. And then after you're done clicking around, you implant the value. And so you are totally surrounding and wrapping your demo with value language rather than feature language. Um, so a couple more T in the favorite framework is tell a story, right? After you've implanted the value and say, as a result of what I just shared with you, you'll be able to achieve X, Y, Z. In fact, one of our customers, Cognizum, used this to yada, 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 and you tell a quick story. And then finally, you elicit a response, right? That's the E, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying, ask another question. And my favorite question to ask after I demo a capability is how does that compare to how you're doing it today? So that's the favorite framework, right? Like it's kind of hard to memorize, right? Like it's, it's not like a three-step magic sauce and your demos will be amazing because it takes some practice, right? You've got to get the muscle memory um, of this demo framework down. A lot of enablement people hate this framework because they're always looking for like, no, I just need like a, a three letter acronym that my reps can use so they can remember it. And I'm like, I don't have that for you, but I have something that actually works in real life. It's just going to take a little bit more, more effort. So that's the favorite framework. Um, it works really, really well, but it does take some practice to, to get right. All right. Very cool. Interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, the last sort of uh, bullet point that I have that I would love to to dive into you um, on today's episode with is um, I know if you talk a little bit about um, sale, how sales is a leadership endeavor. Mm. Um, you're you're sort of you know as a salesperson you're providing clarity through a very complicated uh, buyer's journey. Oftentimes, um, I'd love for you to expand on this a little bit more. Like, what do you mean by this? Yeah. So, so the way I say it is sales is an act of leadership and here's why. So Frida, let me ask you a question. How many times have you bought P club for business? You're ahead of sales. How many times have you done it? Zero times. Zero times. How many times do you think I've sold it? Uh, hopefully like a lot of times, <laughs> way more than more, I bought more it. More than zero right. times, right? Yeah. Okay, so given that context, <laughs> who could be leading who if we're trying to do a sales cycle together? Of right. course, yeah. I should Right? I've yeah. seen this movie a bunch before. You've never bought it. You don't know what it looks like or how how to go through an internal approval process. And I wouldn't expect you to because it's a product you've never bought before. And yet, like a lot of salespeople get up on next steps at the end of their call 
and they're kind of like, so <laughs> what should we do next? Like, what do you think? <laughs> the buyer's like, hell if I know, like, I've never bought this before. Haven't you sold this a bunch of times? And so what I have noticed, and I have no data back to back this up, except for my own observation, but I've observed it so many times that it is a true and utter conviction of mine, is the best salespeople, without being bulldozing about it or overbearing, always have a point of view on what to do next. And the thing they have a point of view on is the what, who, and why of next steps, right? What is the right next step? Who should be involved on both sides? And in case the buyer asks why we're recommending this next step, you should have a good reason. You should be able to answer the why behind that. And so again, salespeople shouldn't be overbearing about it, but like, instead of ending a sales call with how most salespeople do, saying something like, so, um, you know, just kind of very uncertain on what to do next, the best salespeople say something like, look, I have a pretty strong point of view on what we can do next to make this really easy for you. Before I share my perspective, I'm curious if you have a strong opinion as well. And a lot of, most of the time, a buyer is going to say, no, you, you know, go ahead, like make a suggestion. And then you suggest what the next step should be. Now, it's also okay if the buyer does have a strong opinion on what to do next. You want to give them that opportunity. But the point is like, have a perspective on what to do next and even what to do after what to do next, right? The best sale or salespeople are looking a couple steps down the road and they know what next step they're going to recommend a couple steps from where they are now. So that's what I mean by selling as an act of leadership, right? Most of your buyers, most of the people you're selling to um, have never bought your product. Or if they have, maybe once or twice, right? Maybe they were like a champion who moved to a new company. But you as a salesperson have sold it a bunch of times. And so the burden of leadership is on your shoulders and you have to own that. So this sounds very simple when you're laying it out like this. Like, why do you think so many teams are still lacking this? <laughs> I think there's probably a number of reasons, but I would think the biggest one is just lack of planning, right? If you're about to, don't go into a call and, until you know what you're going to recommend at the end, right? A lot of salespeople just kind of go through their motions and go through the routine. They show up on a demo call without giving a lot of thought to, um, to planning that call beforehand. It doesn't take long. This is like a seven minute thing you can do before a call. Um, and just plan out, right? Like write down, what am I gonna recommend as a next step? Who am I gonna be, who am I gonna recommend be involved? And in case they ask, why am I gonna recommend that? So I think one is just a lack of planning. Um, two could be a confidence thing, right? Maybe some salespeople just are not confident kind of playing that leadership position, in which case, you probably have to ask yourself, can you correct that part of your personality, if, for lack of a better word? And if you can't, maybe there's a better career for you. Um, and then I think another one is probably on leadership, right? Like leadership and sales enablement and product marketing, they should be able to teach their reps, here is what next steps look like, right? Because sales leaders see a bunch of deals. Sales reps only see their deals, but if you manage eight people, and each one's working 20 deals at a time. I'm not good at math, but what's that? 160 <laughs> deals in your pipeline. <laughs> so it's kind of like a meta thing, right? Sales is an act of leadership, but sales leadership is even more so an act of leadership. So 
I kind of just ripped on that. Like, I don't know if those are the causes for sure, but that's what comes mm-hmm. to mind. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious because one thing that you like for you when you were uh, selling at Gong and for us here at Cognizant that we have in common is we're selling to salespeople. <laughs> uh, I'm sure this like adds an extra layer of just like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, complexity. Um, what would you say like makes it different in, in selling to salespeople or is it different at all? No, I think, I think it's very different. Um, <clears throat> the way I would describe it is if you're good, if you're a salesperson and you're good at selling and you sell, sell to sales leaders, it's actually easier than selling to other buyer personas. Cause like a good sales leader will melt in your hands like putty if they're the <laughs> good sales yeah. type. If you're bad at it though, then it's like 10 times harder because <laughs> they yeah. won't give you the time of day, right? You can be bad at selling to HR and still be okay, or maybe not bad, but below average or average. If you're just average at selling to salespeople or sales leaders, they're going to look at the sales experience you're delivering fairly or unfairly as an indication of your product's quality, right? So that's what's really hard about selling to sales leaders. If if you're not good at them, if you can't use technique in a way that they're like, oh, that was a, you know, a good discovery call that we just had together or something like that. Um, then, then you're going to struggle. But if you're good at it, it's actually easier than selling to other personas. It's also the last thing I'll say is you can just be so upfront mm-hmm. about sales leaders. Yeah. You can call out everything you're doing. Like in a discovery call, you can be like, look, you know, you know how this movie goes. I want to understand what challenges you're going through to see if we even have anything. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. You probably know what I'm going to ask you, but let's do it anyway. Okay. And most sales leaders are like, okay, game on, game on, let's do it. <laughs> Yeah. So there is, there are benefits, uh, to selling to salespeople, uh, if you're really good at it, it's going to make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very accurate, uh, observation. I think so. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for coming to today's episode of redefining outbound. Uh, I learned a lot uh, and I hope our listeners did too. Um, so thanks for coming.